if you believe that people with disabilities should be put in institution, then you get your ass in the institution and you tell us how you feel the next day. Hey, I'm Megan. I'm a disabled researcher and writer passionate about understanding and making known the conditions of disability and in institutions in Canada. And this is Invisible Institutions. Canada institutions for people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities have never closed. They've changed faces and names, but have remained responsible for the ongoing segregation and isolation of labeled people. Today, group homes are one of the primary forms of supportive housing for labeled people. And while not all group homes are institutions, all group homes have the potential to become institutions. When I started meeting group home residents and their families and friends and learning almost everything I possibly could about them, it became blaringly obvious just how institutional these settings are. You see, often group homes are not as homey as their name implies. These are places where there is intensive regulation, huge power imbalances, and limited opportunities for decision-making. People should have the right to choose where and who they live with. This has been a central part of the 50-year fight for deinstitutionalization. group homes or congregate housing. Sometimes they have different names. Make up the majority of developmental services funding, which makes group homes the default housing for so, so many people. Alongside the disproportionate funding for group homes through developmental services, there is a housing crisis in Canada where more than 100,000 people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities are in acute housing need. Before people even get to make the decision about if they want to live in a group home, decisions were made that labeled people should live in a group home. For many people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities, they are only offered a bad or a worse choice nursing home or continuing care facility, emergency shelter or prison, forensic psychiatric ward or group home, group home or street. These are not decisions, but if people don't make them, the government will make them for them. So even though the choice is already constrained to group homes, there are incredibly long wait lists to get into a group home. In some places, the estimated wait to get into a group home can be up to 20 years. And this shortage makes it hard or impossible to decline a group home, even if that home is miles away from family and friends, even if that means having three roommates, 25 housemates, even if that means you're living in a Christian group home while practicing another faith. People should not have been told, you're going to live with Joe. Meanwhile, you may have never met Joe. Or even if you have met Joe before, you may have not, um, you may have had different interactions with Joe. So I think it's, it goes down to choice. 
And these realities of wait lists and disruption and lack of choice position institutionalization as a pervasive threat to the lives of people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. COVID-19 was only one example of this. You see, people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities have a two to six times higher mortality rate than those without the label. This risk is increased even further in congregate settings like group homes. Take, for example, Public Health Ontario's suggestions for group homes. In shared bedrooms, space should be increased between beds to at least two meters apart. If this is not possible, consider different strategies to keep residents apart, such as placing beds head to foot or foot to foot. The higher and the denser the setting, the greater the risk of mortality and infection. In the spring of 2020, one of the first wide-scale COVID-19 outbreaks in Canada happened at a group home in Ontario. The developmentally and intellectually disabled. Several thousand residents in group homes contracted the coronavirus. Hundreds had died. The true number is likely... At the participation house in Markham, all 42 residents were exposed and infected with COVID-19. Six people died. In many group homes, residents were isolated in their shared bedrooms and prohibited from accessing shared spaces like the living room and the kitchen. COVID-19 made it evident just how large and just how institutional group homes can be. Now, how group homes became the dominant form of housing for people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities means we need to go back. Group homes were born in the 1960s and 1970s in response to the growing movement of deinstitutionalization sweeping North America. They were seen as reimaginings of service provision for people with disabilities, as they were supposed to be smaller, community-based settings. And this was really radical change from the norm then which was 2,000-person, large-scale institutions that were really far outside of cities. As institutions continued to close through the 1970s until today, more and more group homes opened. A lot has changed in the last 50 years, including our understanding and the composition of group homes. Over the last 30 years, governments really promoted larger ownership because it's cheaper. See, group homes are funded and regulated provincially, but operate by third parties. So that means many larger nonprofit organizations operate more than one group home. Group homes also began tying together support, like employment support, and residential services. That means the same person who provides your housing provides your community support services or supported employment. So what makes a group home an institution? The thing is, our policies never got past the desire to segregate and institutionalize people with disabilities at the lowest cost possible. This is based on the belief that the only way to provide support and housing for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities is to remove them from their community. 
place them in an isolated environment with only other labeled people or workers and provide them supports in that same environment. Here's Corey. You heard him at the start. Uh, my name is Corey Earl, and I'm calling from outside of Ottawa, Ontario, west of Ottawa. He's the president of People First of Canada and has lived through the group home system. So, so great to be here. I think for a lot of people, they think that the time of institutionalization is over, which of course we know is not true. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about where people are institutionalized today. Institutions are more than a, than a uh, big building. Like they, they simply are. Um, in fact, it's a state of mind. It's a state of consciousness. And we don't need smaller institutions, quite frankly, um, just like we don't need large ones. The whole idea is not to turn around and say, now that we've closed, now that we're on the path to closing large institutions, we're going to open 500 small institutions. They're just smaller, different size. Um, but, uh, but again, then we're, then we're segregating people from the community. And people may want to live with different roommates, but at least they get, we get to make those choices. Like, we get to make those choices. Um, and we get to make those decisions. Those are, these are real stories that are impacting every single day when someone makes a call and says, we have a bed for you. We don't have a home for you. We have a bed for you. Now, if you think about that for one second, about if someone called you up and said, we have a bed for you, how would that make you fundamentally feel? I know I would get a horrible feeling in my stomach. Thinking, so now I'm used not as a person, I'm used as a number. This would make me livid. A bed, a number, not a home. And this is so often how we think about institutions, in terms of beds as opposed to homes. And once we think about things in terms of beds, numbers, or efficiency, we forget about the human beings. People should have the right to choose who they live with. But in many provinces, group homes or congregate housing, sometimes they have different names, make up more than 60% of the service funding which makes group homes the default housing option for so many people. And to get into that housing, there are incredibly long wait lists. It makes it really hard or impossible to decline a group home, even if that home is miles away from family and friends, even if that means having three roommates and 25 housemates. These realities, that of wait lists, and disruption and lack of choice position institutionalization as a pervasive threat to the lives of people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. This is about people's lives where they should be able to wake up and say, wow, look at my home. I have pictures up, like I feel like this is my home. Why? Because I've been able to be, play a part into making this my home. Um, whereas being in institution uh, people were put into the home where it's like okay well you could be shipped off to somewhere else and there's so much things that go on in those homes versus someone turn around and having their keys to their place you certainly don't get to make choices about the furniture the location the access to services who runs it, who operates it, who manages it, the roommates, the housemates, the food, the staff, the list goes on. 
Following three years of investigation, this past summer, two senior managers of a large-scale developmental services agency who operated a bunch of group homes were suspended from the Nursing College of BC as a result of unprofessional conduct of a serious nature. The suspension followed complaints from three parents, a former employee, and the college itself. And these complaints demonstrate some of the ways that group homes make people vulnerable. You see, group homes have the legal ability to restrain people labeled challenging and put them in an isolation setting. They have the ability to remove visitors, never let them in again. And they have the ability to restrain people using medication. And in these three cases, parents were prevented from advocating for their family members because group homes have the ability to decide who's let in. Family members and other social or intimate bonds are often on the front line to preventing abuse from happening. And in these cases, the removal of families from group homes allowed for ongoing violences to continue without accountability. These complaints are pretty horrific, so just want to give you a quick warning. As reported first by Bethany Lindsay for the CBC, these complaints documented serious medical violence against three young adults labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. During their time in these group homes, the college found several horrific counts. One, a 24-year-old who suffered permanent scarring to his corneas and significant mental health deterioration. This was not care. This is medical violence. And then, Katrina Lavery died. Katrina was 21 years old and living in a Garth Homer Society group home. She was struggling with her health, but during this time, her mom was prevented from seeing her, despite being her best friend and best advocate. The senior managers labeled her mom as difficult, aggressive, challenging, simply for advocating for the best interests of Katrina. And without her mom's support and advocacy, Katrina's health deteriorated quickly. But those managers prevented staff from calling the ambulance. So her stomach stretched. Her temperature continued to increase. And the society did nothing. Eventually, Katrina was admitted to the hospital, where they found a severely untreated bowel obstruction. She went through surgery after surgery. But the harm was done. Katrina died. And at the heart of this is ableist violence, denial of Katrina's right to choose and to access family and supports. No one should experience violence or neglect, especially not in a place you are supposed to call home. And these stories are one of so, so many. And while not all group homes cause such violence, these structures need to be interrogated because for too long, we have understood group homes as places that aren't political, as places that are simply okay. There's a lot of ableism underwriting that. Mainly the assumption that if you're a person or organization helping people with disabilities, you're amazing. But just as we've seen in the long-term care sector, these power dynamics mean that people can be put in very vulnerable places. Group homes, no matter their size, have the potential 
to be institutions. So I'm going to introduce you to our next guest. Jahan Abbas has been involved in the disability movement for several years and has extensive advocacy and professional experiences related to access, exclusion, and equality. She currently teaches at Ryerson University and is a research associate at the Disabled Women's Network of Canada. Thanks so much for joining me today. You have written about the histories of disability incarceration in Ontario, such as at the Huronia Regional Centre, a former large-scale institution that in its prime incarcerated thousands of people. Can you tell me about the current forms of disability confinement in Ontario? Yes, thanks so much for having me. I think that it's important to think about sort of that continuum of confinement. And I think a lot of people are under the impression that forms of institutionalization are a thing of the past. Um, and thinking this way sort of obscures current forms of confinement and how um, current policies are upholding them. So really, for me, confinement persists because people with intellectual disabilities um, still don't have choice or control in their lives. I'm going to integrate a really helpful definition here. It helps us reframe our understanding of institutions from those giant places towards that continuum that Jihan talks about. Okay, here we go. An institution is any place in which people who have been labeled as having an intellectual disability are isolated, segregated, and or congregated. An institution is any place in which people do not have or are not allowed to exercise control over their lives and their day-to-day -day decisions. An institution is not defined merely by its size. I think a lot of these sites operate in similar ways um, that these historic institutions that uh, we've studied do. Um, you know, people are surveyed, um, they're controlled, um, they're punished in similar ways um, for sort of not following those rules, which are often deeply ableist. Um, and once you're inside these sites or these systems, even within the community, uh, for any number of reasons, um, you're more prone to sort of systemic forms of ableism. Um, and I think it's more difficult once you're in this system to get out, if that, uh, if that answers your question. When Jihan talks about punishment here, I'm just going to spell it out a bit more. One of the ways that people are controlled in group homes is restraints. Physical restraints are anything that you use to limit someone's mobility, whether that be holding them in a specific way or using a type of restraint equipment. And a chemical restraint, it's a type of medication that you use to sedate someone. These regulations state that they do not consider these punishments. But that doesn't mean that the people that experience them don't think of them that way. And it's integral to remember that while developmental services label isolation as part of a therapeutic response, the United Nations considers forms of chemical and physical restraint and prolonged isolation as torture used against people with disabilities. In their report on medical torture, they specifically point to the United States and Canada as countries utilizing this against their citizens with disabilities in direct opposition to their human rights. The use of restraints and forms of isolation are really pervasive. On average, between 2008 and 2013 in Ontario, there were almost 3,000 instances of physical restraint use. There were 194 deaths and 120 missing clients. 
Let me be clear. Restraints in isolation are not responses to disability. They're used to control people with disabilities, and they have had fatal consequences. And risk is not evenly distributed. Marginalization really impacts risk of institutionalization. The last 30 years of research suggests that women and girls are more likely to be institutionalized and are more likely to be victims of violent crime, are more likely to be underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed, and are more likely to stay in abusive relationships because they have no place to go. Who is it? An hysterical woman. Are you insane? I don't take calls from hysterical women. The report by Don Canada, more than a footnote, digs deep into this. We're going to have that linked in the show notes. You write in your research that there is a risk and threat of institutionalization of women labeled with intellectual disabilities. This is such powerful language, and I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit more what the particular risk is of institutionalization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the risk of institutionalization is always present for disabled people. And, and I think, um, especially if we take a cross-disability perspective, um, those with intellectual and mental health disabilities. Um, and these bodies are really surveilled and policed in different and aggressive ways. Um, at every stage of the life course, if you have an intellectual disability, there's a threat of institutionalization. Um, so this can start when children are very young, um, the way um, that uh, the education system works and specifically the way that schools use police. Um, so things like zero tolerance policies um, that we know disproportionately impact disabled and racialized students. Um, they're at play and they start to create this school to prison pipeline. Um, or, you know, if we move through the life course, uh, increased surveillance and punishment. Um, from child protective services for disabled parents um, to then congregate in long-term care for young adults um, and a lack of support for people with disabilities as they age in the community. Um, there's really always at every stage of life um, the increased threat of institutionalization um, for people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, so for me, it plays out throughout the life course um, it's always, I think, hanging over people. It's always a threat that it's there, um, either if they don't conform or if there's a lack of supports, which we know um, is a systemic issue. Um, so I think for women and girls labeled with intellectual disabilities, this risk is incredibly real. Um, and it's something that persists in every area of their life across the life course. The life course piece is really important, and it addresses one of the major challenges, that is that we are setting up people to be institutionalized over the course of their entire lives. It's like we're putting people into a maze with only dead ends. And then when you get to what you think is an exit door, it's actually just the door to another institution. Corey told me a bit more about how segregation and institutionalization played out in his own life course. You know, I went through an education system where I was segregated. That didn't prepare me for a community. That prepared me for segregation. So when I eventually got out to the community, I went, wow, there's a whole new world. 
there's absolutely a whole new world out there. And that really made me have a whole lot of respect. I didn't get that from an education system or from family or from family because some of the family, you know, shift off to the other way. I got that from actually coming out to the community and, and, and realizing that there was more to uh, more to being part of the community um, than there ever was. And so many people in social and development disabilities uh, will tell you the exact same thing. We rely upon segregation and institutionalization at every single step of the way, from the education system, through our services and employment models, to our current housing system. Current and past policies have really framed labeled people as at risk. But once we label people as at risk, it makes for much more paternalistic policy. So policies that are presuming that someone can't do something. And then the thing about risk is that it's also the very thing that so many people rationalize as the reason people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities should be institutionalized, surveilled, segregated. It's absolutely okay for us to take risk. Like for people to turn around and say, oh, well, you know, if they take a risk, this could be a big jump. Well, hell, so what? If I take a risk and I and I knock down, I expect people just like anyone else in the community lift me back up. But don't treat me any differently than 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 someone else down the street. Don't treat me like I'm a four year old. So you wrote an amazing article, freeing our people, with Natalie Spanolo. It's honestly one of my favorite articles. And in it, you ask the question, why do we keep people with intellectual disabilities in institutions? I was glad to do with Natalie because I think that shed a lot of light um, because it's, it's time that we don't hide from the past. It's time that we acknowledge the, the incredible, uh, hurtful and, and, and horrible things that have happened. You know, and I think what we need to do is talk to people who experience the horrifying stuff that happened in institutions, the survivors who've gone through horrifying stuff. Ask them, because I can guarantee you, uh, their question isn't um, how long I'm going to stay here. Their question is, when the hell can I get out of here? To put it bluntly. I think having this frank and open conversation, uh, we should no longer talk about institutions. Rather, we should talk about what does a community mean to me? What does a community mean to Joel down the street? What does a community, and I can guarantee you, the only time you probably won't get people saying that um, that they want to go into institution is because they don't know any difference, because they've been so used to being institutionalized that they don't know that there's choices and options out there for them. They don't know that they have a right because those rights far too often have been taken away. You know, if I was put in a group home for decades, I wouldn't know that I could be a, that I could have my voice to be able to go and live with someone. I wouldn't know that. Um, and I think, and I think we have to change that. So, how do we change that? Well, I, I fundamentally believe it, it starts with society. I think far too long and far too often society has uh, has has category as as one side of the issue and not being part or being included in society. Um, and as society, um, there's been a lot of judging, a lot of labeling on that. People with intellectual and or developmental disabilities need to be, to be part of the community and not in institutionalized. 
in an actual community setting. I think that starts changing not just society, but as organizations who fundamentally provide the services to people. Um, having those conversations, and I think we need to get the families on board because some people that have families um, face the challenge of being institutions because that's what their families know. Some of their families know, and that's what some of their families think that they know what's best. Well, I can tell you right now, as someone that's had a lived experience, no one knows what's best for me except what's what I know what's best for me. Um, and and it's and it's about not saying, Joe, you can't do this. It's about how can I support you to have the best life to live in the community, um, and by by doing that in society um, or in a different setting, um, it's it's being set up for failure. It's being set up for failure on the terms that uh, that we're going to hide people and say being, you know, you should be who you are and you should be uh, the forefront and be part of the community, whether it's recreation, whether it's anything. So what is a community? And what form of community do we need to help disabled people flourish? Corey, what's community meant for you? So look, at we, we all need support regardless whether you have a disability or not. But being part of the community means that whether you rent a home, whether you own a home, um, that you're also part of the recreation and activities that go on in the community. Um, that you can go to Tim Hortons, not with uh, not necessarily with people with disabilities. That you can go to Tim Hortons with your friends, with your family. A community means that you can, um, you know, you can call up at ten o'clock at nighttime um, to one of your family members and not having to worry about that you have a caution on when you can use the phone. Being part of a community is essential for all of us. When I say community, what I mean are the people, places, and things that support us to live. And in turn, the ways I support many people, places, and things to live. I find that for myself, as someone with disabilities, there's a lot of different components of my independent living. Like, I need a dishwasher because I have arthritis and my hands don't work that well. I'm sorry, all my broken plates. And we right now view supports so narrowly and we don't see all the different systems that we require that support us to live in community. Things like a dishwasher, things like family members to drive me to the hospital or the doctor or bringing my neighbor bread because they're the best. You see, it's all part of being in a community, supporting each other, and helping everyone survive. A really big part about making this podcast was exposing these realities to you so that we can all understand this ongoing risk of institutionalization and how freaking bad things are. I was so grateful to speak with Jihan and Corey to lay out the stakes for us in terms of the risk of institutionalization? Well, I think, first of all, it's important for us to take the lead um, from those with lived experience. And those with intellectual disabilities um, have been clear the kinds of things they need, um, you know, poverty reduction measures and things like that. Um, I hear a lot of people talk about deinstitutionalization as if it's done. 
and it's a thing of the past. Um, but for people with intellectual disabilities, this isn't the case. Um, and I think right now, if, if we look at some of the exciting things that are happening and we say look at um, disability justice and that movement, I think it gives a really good framework um, for how we can have cross solidarity and how we can work across movements um, and how I think we can be more inclusive in our activism because um, as I'm sure you know, oftentimes when we advocate for things, um, policies come through in a way where a lot of people are left out. And I think um, those intersections are important, that intersectionality piece, but also that cross-disability piece um, to make sure that those with intellectual disabilities aren't left out of our advocacy. I think um, people who um, can also be allies and be supporters and it's supporting and encouraging people with disabilities to be part of the community. Invite, invite us into your home. We're not that bad evil people that what people oftentimes have labeled us. We're, we're people that want just what you want. We want hope. We want opportunities. We want the same dreams and goals that so many of you face in the community. You know, so I ask you, have open arms and, uh, and open minds as we engage in this because as society and as people who are non-labeled in disabilities, um, you could be the first step to making this a reality for so many of us who just want to feel that we're valued, that we're welcomed. Is everything perfect? No, but nor is people who don't have disabilities perfect either. So we need to remember that. We need to remember as a community um, that, uh, that that's changed our way of thinking of decades of old thinking and change our way of new thinking. And that is one that people with disabilities will always be part of the community, regardless of really live in the community. Um, we will support them without labeling them and without judging them. And we will listen and we will understand the struggles of the past, but we will renew our commitment to say that we will make sure that as long as you are part of our community, that you will never be faced with this again. It's going to take a whole lot of advocacy and a whole lot of community building. We can have communities filled to the brim with people with disabilities. And those communities are going to be a whole heck of a lot stronger and a whole heck of a lot more beautiful. As supporters, you have a whole long, um, you could be very powerful and impactful on making sure that we're part of the community. Um, and you can demand more from governments on our behalf. And you can demand more from organizations who fundamentally support the services that exclude people rather than include people. Um, and you can and you can have our backs along the journey. This is a journey. People with disabilities just want their lives back. They don't want any more of the segregation and any more of the past of wrongdoing. And I and as as a community, I don't think those, that's a whole lot to ask for, um, because I fundamentally believe the times are slightly changing. But I believe there is yet better days ahead um, as we go into um, ensuring that people are part of the community. Um, and as long as we're around, we'll continue to advocate for that because it is the fundamentally right thing to do. Um, and if we close our blind eye, if we don't have these discussions today, um, then the future is in limbo for people. We need to have these conversations and we need to know the generations ahead know that we have fought hard for people to be part of the community.
Thank you. I don't know about you, but that gave me goosebumps. We covered a lot of ground in this episode. I know these conversations are shocking, devastating, and horrifying, but my hope is not to immobilize you. It's to mobilize you because the truth is we have the means, research, and so, so much evidence that can rapidly increase the quality of life for people with disabilities. And I'm looking forward to joining you on that journey. Invisible Institutions was created by me, Megan Linton, with support from People First of Canada and Inclusion Canada's Joint Task Force on Deinstitutionalization. Audio recording by me, Megan Linton. This episode was advised by the Joint Task Force on Deinstitutionalization and Helena Crobath. Helena is amazing and also does the audio post-production, sound design, and helped a lot with production on this episode. Our theme music was composed by Bara Ladik, and a huge special thanks to Bethany Lindsay for their amazing reporting on the Garth Homer Society. Another shout out of thanks to Corey Earle, Monica Schrader, Kendall David, Jihan Abbas, Kit Chalkley, and a huge thank you to Erica McPherson and Jose Boulanger for providing the Freedom Tour audio. Talk to you soon.